All right, kiddos, y'all can go. That's little children, so the rest of you have to stay. Uh, So my name is Nathan. If I've not had a chance to meet you, so glad you're here. Welcome to Restoration Church. Uh, We're glad to um, serve you God's Word this morning, and uh, that's what we're going to do. But before we get started, as you're passing the basket, my timing's not really good, but it's okay. I'm going to go ahead and pray anyway. So those of you in the back row, keep your eyes open. Uh, All right, let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you for your Word. Thank you that you've given it to us, that we can know something of you. We pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would open our eyes of our heart, that we might behold you. And in particular this morning, God, we pray that you would help us to understand the grace of salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Joey mentioned, uh, we are starting a new series this morning called, uh, well, I think it's called The Five Solos. I'm not sure what we call it. I'm never good with titles uh, or sermon titles. But yeah, it's, we're, we're celebrating, or actually thinking in particular, about the Reformation. So October the 31st is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And the Reformation was a series of events that quite literally changed the course of history. Uh, and we're going to take the month of October to, re, to remember what the Reformation was about and also consider some key players that went inside of that movement. And so what we're going to do is in each sermon, we're going to try to follow one person uh, from church history in order to tell the ideas uh, that those guys sort of dusted off in relation to the gospel. What the Reformation did is they dusted off the clarity of the gospel that had gotten clouded by bad teaching over centuries. And so uh, at the front end of this sermon, I want to make a couple here, uh, this series, let me make a couple things very clear. First off, the men that we're going to consider were saints, but they were also like us sinners. You need to know that. So while they did amazing, great and great things that we will document, they also advocated some things that are not in keeping with the grace of the gospel. And so from Martin Luther's well-documented treatment of the Jews to John Calvin's advocating the execution of Servetus, these men were men of their times, and they advocated some things that we should detest. Um, And while in many ways these guys are heroes, they also remind us a lot of ourselves and even our heroes in the Bible that made amazing decisions for the greatness of God, but they also made some really, really bad decisions. So in that way, these heroes that we will consider are similar to them. The most important thing that we need to consider about these guys that we will look at over the course of this month is that they pointed us to Christ. And He is our hope. The reason why those guys were so helpful to us is because they pointed to Christ and He is our captain and our salvation. So keep that in mind. Be encouraged, be informed, be inspired by these men, but be warmed by them too. They were imperfect people. Uh, But secondly, as we consider this, it's important to note that the men and women of the Reformation were not creating a new sect of Christianity. So they were simply, again, dusting off the pure, distilled gospel. The gospel that I mentioned was sort of clouded by poor teaching. And so that is why it is called the Reformation. It's the reformation. They're not forming anything new. They're reforming. And so there's five statements. You've heard them mentioned a good bit this morning already that sort of encapsulate what the Reformation was about, what they captured, what they taught. Uh, They're sometimes called the five solas. Solas is Latin for the word only. And so the five onlys, we could say. And each week, we're going to look at one of those solas while telling the story of one of the Reformers while also expositing a text. So you can pray for me. 
So it might be a little too ambitious. We'll see. But uh, the five solas, again, tell the story of the gospel. So when you think about the five solas, the five onlys, they're telling the story of the gospel, how someone can be born again and changed by his grace. So those five solas goes like this. They say we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, as it is revealed to us in the scriptures alone. We'll look at those each week next week. Uh, John Erickson, the speaker from the um, men's retreat, will be here and he will be taking a look at John Calvin uh, discussing faith alone from Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. But today we're going to look at the first one, grace alone, by telling the story of Martin Luther, the kind of captain of the Reformation. He's the one that is attributed to beginning the Reformation, although it should be noted that, first off, he never intended to do that. He did not set out to start a reformation. You'll see it kind of came upon him. But also, there were men before him, before Luther, guys like John Huss and John Wycliffe, that were already saying the kinds of things that Luther said well before him. But regardless, Luther was the touchstone that the Lord used to light a fire that swept through the Western world. We will tell his story and consider grace alone from a text in Scripture that has come down to us as Martin Luther's tower experience. So again, it's in Romans 1, 16 and 17. So go ahead, if you haven't already, turn there to that passage. For that passage was the passage that God used to change Luther's life in many ways. And So let me give you a little background to his tower experience of Luther. Martin Luther was born in November of 1483. His father, Jean, was a minor. And John noticed Uh, that his son Martin was kind of a bright guy. He liked studying. He liked thinking. And so his dad saw his opportunity to get himself out of poverty. He was a minor and saw his opportunity to get himself out of poverty by sending his son Martin off to uh, school to be a lawyer. Well, not only was Luther very intelligent, Martin Luther was also very religious. He had a hero that was a monk uh, from long ago. And so it was. Uh, As after Luther had gone to school at the University of Erfurt there in Germany, this is where we're at, uh, he had gone to visit his parents and on his way back, he had got caught up in a thunderstorm. And in fact, a lightning bolt had struck so closely to him, it knocked him off of his feet. Uh, And as he is making his way back, he's scared and he cries out, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. Now, St. Anne was the patron saint of minors, so that would have been a familiar, familiar saint to Luther. Uh, and incidentally, our own Catholic church here in our own community is named St. Anne. But while most of us would have forgotten the pledge to be a monk after things sort of calmed down, not, not Luther. His conscience was too captive to him. And so to the great disappointment of his father, after he finished his, his degree at Erfurt, he went off and joined an Augustinian convent. He got rid of all of his earthly possessions. He was given a simple robe and his hair was cut a lot like mine. So big bald spot in the back and a little bit of hair in the front. He probably had a little more hair than I did. But nevertheless, it was cut like this. uh, And he entered what was called a cloister. So a cloister in this monk, uh, in this Augustinian uh, location, this cloister was a pledge, uh, was a pledge to yourself to adopt all of the rules that were there in that order. And those rules were there in order to kind of show that you were really to show to God that you were really serious about your religion. And so they had all kinds of rules they had to do. They had rules for how to hold your fork, uh, how to talk, when to talk, how to walk and these kinds of things. 
And every few hours, they would leave their tiny cells and go to a chapel and they would sing and pray. There was even one segment where they had to do this in the middle of the night. So Luther would often even take no bread or water for upwards of three days at a time. But there was only one problem with all of this after he got into this convent. The more Luther did these things, the more troubled he became. So take a look at that text there, Romans 1, 16 to 17. Let me read that for us. We'll see why it bothered him so much. Romans 1, 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Luther hadn't really started studying the Bible yet. They didn't do a lot of Bible study, interestingly enough, in this convent. Uh, But that, that idea that he was familiar with there in verse 17, the righteousness of God, that's what troubled Luther so much. That language of righteousness of God that was to be revealed. Of that verse, Luther later said, quote, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness of God. I was angry with God and said, as if it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue. That's the Ten Commandments. The gospel, he says, threatens us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus, I raged with fierce and troubled conscience. Now, Luther had been taught there of verse 17 that the righteousness that is revealed is a righteousness that only condemns. That's what he had been taught. And so the more Luther did to perform his own righteousness, the more guilt he would feel. He kept noticing that he never could do enough. And so it just hung over him. And so he had the opportunity even to go to Rome. So he's in Germany. He had the opportunity to go to Rome where he could perform all kinds of deeds there in Rome to kind of work off his sin and to try to get more into God's good graces. The Roman Catholic Church taught him that if he did these things, went up these steps, said these prayers, saw these things, he could work it off. Uh, And yet all of this even still just troubled him more. And I wonder if you sometimes feel the same way. Do you ever feel the same way about maybe you sort of do enough religious activity and you too feel like Luther do? You just feel as though it's never enough and God is just sort of hanging over you. Well, Luther would go on to, he would confess his sin for upwards of six hours. He would even leave the confessional and be guilted by some other thoughts of sin. He would run back and confess more sin to these people. And in all of this, Luther was grappling with salvation. He's grappling with salvation, how somebody is saved, how they're forgiven of their sins. And so the righteousness revealed, verse 17 there, so Luther believed, he kept hanging over his head. And no matter what he did, no matter how much he did to make himself acceptable a God, he never felt as though he was acceptable. Luther was such a careful student of uh, these ideas and of the rules that he was invited to go off to Wittenberg to study the Bible. Uh, little did they know that the Catholic Church, little did they know what the Catholic Church was doing, uh, putting the, the Bible in the hands of such a man. But nevertheless, he did. He went off to, to Wittenberg to study the Bible. Eventually, Luther earns his doctorate. He begins teaching the Bible. He's studying the Bible, teaching the Bible. When one day, one day he heard about the sale of something called indulgences in a neighboring town. Now, indulgences were a creation of the Roman Catholic Church where the Catholic Church taught and still teaches today 
that after a Christian dies, they still need to work off their sin in this place called purgatory, in between heaven and hell. And after they're there for long enough, eons and eons, working off their sin, they could eventually get to heaven. And indulgences were things that were issued by the Roman Catholic Church, whereby you could pay some sum of money, and you could sort of use that to pay off some time in purgatory. Or you could use that to pay off some family members that may have died, pay off their time uh, in purgatory, and eventually make the path quicker up to heaven. And simultaneously, some of the money would go to the local region, but a lot of the money would go on to, the, to Rome and the Roman Catholic Church where they were building St. Peter's Basilica. So it was a great way for the Roman Catholic Church to make money. Well, a man by the name of Tetzel was going around in Germany, Johann Tetzel, and he would have this little jingle, he would say, to sort of create, uh, to communicate these ideas. He would say, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Now, many, many people believe this, and though many were poor, they gave their money to purchase time out of purgatory. Well, Luther catches wind of this, and he writes his now famous 95 Thesis. And this is where it all begins. Luther takes those 95 theses. They would have been written in Latin, by the way. He wrote those 95 theses, and it is believed that he nailed those 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg on All Hallows' Eve, 1517. So what is All Hallows' Eve? What's, what do we call that? Halloween. Yeah. So he did that on October the 31st, 1517. We get the 500-year anniversary. So... On the next day, November the 1st, was All Saints Day, which where people would have come to the church to celebrate the saints, which by Roman Catholic Church would be these kind of particular saints, like St. Saint Anne, not the saints that are in Christ. So he writes that, he puts that up there, but it's important to note, Luther did not write those theses in order to begin a reformation. He did it to call out a debate about the cell of indulgences. And his first of those 95 theses explains what he was after in writing these things. And he wrote, quote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, referencing Matthew 4, 17, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So you see, Luther understood that to sell indulgences was an attempt to buy your way to heaven. And he knew that the Bible did not teach that. He also knew that that diminished the work of Christ. And so he knew that we needed to repent of our sins, not to, not to try to pay them off with our money. But again, it must be stressed here, Luther was not trying to start a reformation. He was just trying to be a good pastor to his people, try to teach them the Bible accurately. And he thought that uh, he was being a good Catholic and that Tetzel had got it wrong. But everything could have stopped right there when he posted those theses to issue this debate about indulgence. Everything could have stopped right there were it not for some enterprising people. For about 60 to 70 years prior to that, there was this great invention. Anybody know what it was? It's called the Gutenberg Press. That's right. And so what happened was, is those uh, 95 theses got into the hands of some enterprising people, at which time they go and take it to the Gutenberg Press, and then they print a bunch of copies and spread it all over Germany. One of the reasons, by the way, Wycliffe and Haas weren't as widely known, because they didn't have the press back then. But that's exactly what happened. The, his writing, his 95 Theses, gets spread all over the place. Somebody gets a hold of those 95 Theses, spreads them around, uh, and here's where it begins to kind of catch some speed. Now, I'm going to skip ahead in the story so we can get to the teaching of God's Word. But eventually, the Pope saw Luther's 95 Theses. And he sends this Roman Catholic philosophical ninja by the name of uh, Eck. His last name was Eck. 
Uh, and he has a debate with Luther in this place called Leipzig. And uh, Eck de- uh, baited Luther in the midst of the debate. He baited Luther by asking him if Luther, Luther thought that he could understand the meaning of the Scripture apart from the Pope. He baited Luther, and Luther responded, yes, he could understand the Scripture apart from the Pope. And that was directly opposed to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church taught that we needed the Pope and we needed other councils along the way in order to understand Scripture. One could not do so without them. And so Luther went back and realized, he began to scour and look around and he found that yes indeed, he did not realize it, but yes indeed, he was opposing Roman Catholic teaching that in his understanding that he could actually know the meaning of the text without the Pope. And so it was about this time that Luther had his tower experience. So let's take a look at the text and let's see if you can spot salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Look back there in the text in Romans 1. Notice in verse 15 there, Paul says that he is eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. I want you to notice exactly who he's referencing there. Look back in verse 7 of chapter 1. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So saints, again, are not special classes of Christians like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It's anyone, it's anyone that has been saved by grace through faith in Christ. They have been made holy. A saint means a holy one. They've been made holy by Christ. So here, Paul is writing to Christians. And yet we read there, look at verse 15. He is eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. Isn't it interesting? Paul never gets tired of preaching the gospel. He never gets tired of it. And neither should we, right? There are some things, there are some that people that actually think that the gospel is the kind of elementary school uh, doctrine of the Christian faith. They think it's kind of the start, but you kind of graduate beyond the gospel. But that's not the case at all. The gospel is the elementary school, the middle school, the high school, the undergraduate school, the graduate school, the life school. You never graduate from the gospel. You only go deeper into the gospel. And so he says there, Paul says there in verse 16, for, notice that word for, he's explaining why he's eager to preach the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul, you should ask? Well, for, here it is, he's explaining why he's not ashamed. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, by Jew first, then the Greek, he's describing the ethnic order of salvation. It came first to the Jews and then it spread to the Greeks. Or as Paul says in verse 14, the barbarians, if you are not uh, Greek, then welcome. You're a barbarian. So that's what he says. So that's sort of how it traveled from the Jews and eventually Greeks on to the barbarians. And I think at this point, it couldn't be, there couldn't be a better question that we could ask ourselves of this passage. Here's a great question that you should ask of yourself. What is the power for salvation. What would it be in your mind? If you had to write it out, what is the power for salvation? Or in particular, as Paul says it, what is the power of God for salvation? How would you answer that question? Based off of your answer, you're really going to understand what Luther really helped us see more clearly. Maybe you would say Jesus in some level, right? I mean, you are at a Christian church. You're assuming that Jesus has to be some part of the answer, right? But is it more than that? Is it more than Jesus? Is the power of God for salvation Jesus plus something? Jesus plus, namely, our obedience. 
Well, see, guys, that's what troubled Luther so much. He believed the grace of the grace of the gospel of salvation. The Catholic Church still believes grace of God for salvation, but he did not believe the grace of the gospel for salvation alone. He understood that grace sort of leaked and that he had to constantly fill up the leaking grace by, yes, trusting Jesus, but by also trusting all of his religious activities. Those means of grace. And I think that we can do the same, can't we? We can trust our own devices. We can believe that the power of God for salvation is, yes, Jesus, but also a little bit of us. It's our church attendance, it's our attendance to baptism and communion, our prayers, our giving, our evangelism, our sacrifices, our discipleship, our morality. And so is the gospel, the good news that we can be saved by the power of Jesus plus our obedience? Is that it? Well, that's what Luther was taught. That's what he believed. And while most of us know that that is not the right answer, I do think it's how we often live. See, we feel the need to do stuff in order to justify ourselves and pay off the debt of our sin. I've mentioned this to you guys before. I can remember back when I would sin against God in some way, and it was the day before a baseball game, and I would go read my Bible or something to sort of pay it off so God would give me some hits the next day. I remember doing that vividly. We do the same kinds of things. Maybe you do something and you feel the need to read your Bible or to pray or to give something or maybe to come and eat communion or whatever the case may be. Or maybe some of you feel sort of a different way about your salvation and about your forgiveness. Maybe you feel you need to kind of wallow in your sin for a while before you receive the grace of forgiveness. You need to kind of sit in it. You need to kind of wallow and feel sorry enough and feel as though I need to really work my way to feeling sorry enough. And if I feel sorry enough, then God will forgive me. What is it for you? What is it that you are tempted to trust in, in Jesus plus? What is that? In order to save you, to bring you into forgiveness. Well, whatever it is, friend, let's put it to death by going up to the tower, sitting with Luther and seeing what he discovered. Luther said there, looking at verse 17, you see that language there of righteousness of God is revealed. He said, he, he said, quote, I meditated day and night about what Paul meant by those words, and I gave heed, he said, to the context of them. And he quotes, you'll notice that Paul quotes in Romans 1.17, uh, there's something there, he's, he's quoting Habakkuk 2.14, a passage that's quoted three times in the New Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. And there, Luther said, I began to understand. This is critical. Here it comes. And there I began to understand, he said, that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God. The gift of faith. In other words, he discovered grace there. Grace. He discovered grace. This passage is teaching that it comes by a gift, not by his own obedience. See, Luther had previously understood that grace was given through the channels of obedience that Christ calls us to. Again, through baptism or communion or prayers or confession. God's wrath, he thought, was on us. And he believed that he had to keep going back to those channels of grace to drink in the grace over and over again so as to keep God's righteous wrath off of him. That's what he thought. But sin would always creep in and the grace would always leak out. So he was left to toil in fear of God's wrath day after day as he tried hard to be really religious. 
And again, guys, keep in mind, he is believing in the substitutionary death for sin throughout this whole time. But in this verse, he saw that the power of God for salvation was revealed by faith. See, the power of God for salvation had nothing to do with anything that we did. All we could do was believe or trust not ourselves, but something else for salvation. That's what he saw. Namely, believe or have faith or trust in the gospel because the gospel was the power of God for salvation. See, our response of faith is nothing more than the apparatus that takes hold of the power that is able to save us. Faith does not save us. Jesus saves us. Jesus saves us. And it all comes to us by His grace and for His glory. So in other words, in other words, since salvation, since salvation comes by faith in Christ and by no work of our own, then it must be, it must come entirely by the grace of God working through the Son of God to pay off the debt that we owe to God in our sin. Christ is the power of salvation. His grace is sufficient to save us entirely. There is nothing left for us to do. Christ has done it all on the cross and in the resurrection. That in Christ and in the resurrection, there is where the power for salvation is revealed. There is no power in ourselves to save. The power is completely in Christ in His ability to save. And so for that, salvation is 100% undeserved favor that is bestowed 100% on those of us who believe. And so we've done nothing to earn it and everything to despise it. Everything. And yet by grace and for His glory, we can be saved. Through grace, the righteousness is revealed. It is given to those of us who believe. And this is exactly what we find in other passages of Scripture. Take a look at Ephesians 2.8. This is what John will open for us next week. By grace you have been saved. How? There it is right there. We could stop right there. By grace you have been saved. Notice the E-D, the finished. Saved. How though? How did, the, how did grace save us? Well, through the mechanism of faith. This is not your own doing. Not your own doing. It is, there it is, the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Look at John 1, 12-13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He, this is God, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here we can see that faith itself is a gift of God's grace. And it has to be, right? Because if having faith is something that we do on our own, then we would have something to boast in. It wouldn't be a gift so much as we sort of did something. But since becoming children of God did not come by the will of the flesh, that's what it says, by our wills, but by God graciously choosing, all of this is said to be of God, John 1.13. But also take a look at Acts 15.11. But we believe that we will be saved. How? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus. We could look at Titus 3, 5-7. These first three words could be enough. He saved us. Not, more clarity here, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out 
on us, this is Christians, richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Why? So that being justified, that is made righteous by his what? Grace. Grace. Or perhaps Romans 1.17 is made most clear from Philippians 3.9. Where Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which is to say, not by me obeying a bunch of stuff and doing a lot of stuff like Luther did, but it's a different way. But that which comes through faith in Christ. Christ is the power for salvation. The righteousness, same language as Romans 1.17, the righteousness, where does it come from? From God that depends on faith. Faith is trusting not just believing intellectually. We have to remember the evil one believes the facts of the gospel, but he does not trust them for salvation. Grace has not been given to the evil one. So this gives us context even to the words of John the baptizer, who when he saw Jesus said, Behold the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. We don't take away the sin of our own. We don't take it away. He takes it away. He takes it away. And so he has done everything. Christ has done everything. It is is what? What does he say on the cross? It is finished. It's done. He has done it. He is the power of God for salvation. It comes to us not just by grace, but by grace alone. It is gifted. It is granted. It is grace to sinners who believe, who trust in Jesus for salvation entirely. Go back to Romans 1.17. Take a look at it again. Where it says there again in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That language of from faith for faith means that it begins by faith and it continues by faith. It's all grace. It begins by grace through faith alone and it's carried along by grace through faith alone. And so since the revelation of righteousness to the believer comes by faith, not by any works of our own, that means that the revelation of, of righteousness was entirely and is entirely by grace. See, Luther was forever changed when he saw this because he finally understood that the righteousness of God was not a club to threaten us with. It was both a gift and the power to affect his salvation. And as soon as Luther saw this, he walked through the gates of splendor and was free to love God and not live in constant fear of God. He was free. He was forgiven in Christ. Christ had done it all for him. As Paul wrote in Colossians 3, verse 2, he was dead and his life was now hidden with Christ in God. And it all came to him from the grace of God. And again, not just grace, but grace alone. He did nothing, we do nothing to merit it. Nothing. Nothing to even keep it. And so how do we respond to this? How do we apply this to ourselves? This amazing doctrine of grace alone for salvation. Well, first off, you should know, Christian, that since you have been given the righteousness of Christ by grace alone, then you share in the love of Christ every day. Every day. And nothing and no one can take that away from you. God's love for you is not conditioned on your obedience to Him. Don't forget that. You did absolutely, positively nothing to earn it in the first place. Matter of fact, you've done everything to not earn it. 
in the first place. Remember, what does 1 John teach us? He first loved us. We did not first love Him. Christ died, what? While we were enemies. Enemies. We, we are not just sick with sin, friends. We're not just sick with sin. We're dead in our sins. And God, in His infinite grace, chose to breathe life into the lungs of us that we might live in Christ, in His death and resurrection. And you should know, Christian, this is not just you generally, as in the church. This is you individually. You individually. He chose to offer His Son for each of you that believe by name. By name. It is imputed. It is given. It covers you. He knows you individually. And if you are in Christ, then you are unconditionally grounded in His love because Christ is unconditionally grounded in the Father's love. It's yours to enjoy. I think one of the most, I think one of the most amazing verses in all the Bible is John 17.26 where Jesus is praying for believers and He says, I made known to them Your name and I will continue to make it known. Why? That the love with which You have loved Me may be in them and I in them. If that verse does not rock your socks off, I don't know what will. That verse is unbelievable. Jesus just prayed that the love of the Father, the same love that the Father has for the Son would be in you, Christian. Same love. Same love. And so how much love do you think the Father has for the Son? Well, guess what? The righteousness that has been revealed to you, graced to you, Christian, was revealed or given to you so that the same love that the Father has for the Son would be in you because Christ is in you. This is amazing. No one gets to change that for you, beloved. No one does. And by the way, that includes you. You don't get to change that. Just because you failed last week, just because you failed last year, ten years ago, the power of the Gospel washes away all of those sins and makes them white as snow and introduces you into the love of God by the Son of God. All by grace. For His glory and your good. Because this is why Paul would always begin his letters the same way. He would always begin them by saying grace to you and peace from God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. He would say that all the time. Because he knew that it was the grace of God that led us to the peace of God. Because we're embedded in the love of God eternally. He knew that it all came to us through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We did nothing to earn it and everything to despise it. And yet, because Christ is in us, we are completely loved by God. No matter if we are tall or short, or fat or skinny, or white or black, or American or Russian, Republican or Democrat, successful or unsuccessful, single or married, uh, or somebody that has it all together, or somebody that just doesn't have it together at all. Loved by God. Eternally. He Loves us. See, your spouse, your children, your co-workers, your boss, whatever, they, their love for you may wax and wane, but not the God of the universes. Not His love for you. It remains constant because Christ is in you and He has graced you with Christ and it will never change. And so the love of God is in you forever and ever and ever and ever. 
And by the way, friends, that includes those of you that have been sinned against. Some of you have had some things happen to you that make you think that you are unlovable, that you're sort of broken in some way. Well, if you are in Christ, you are loved by God. Loved by God. You are not damaged goods, nor are you broken. You are a son or a daughter of the Most High God, and He has set His affection upon you from eternity. He has shown you grace that He might love you forever. Enjoy that truth. No matter what lies the evil one may whisper in your ear, the truth is, beloved, you are God's beloved because He has graced you with His righteousness that you did nothing to earn, and He keeps it on your behalf as you trust Him. But what else might we learn from this doctrine of grace alone for salvation? Well, let me address those of you that have not yet trusted Christ. Those of you that are not a Christian, you're thinking about Christianity. It's possible that you came in here today thinking much the same way as Luther did. That you sort of thought that you needed to kind of do a lot of stuff to kind of make your way and clean yourself up to be pleasing or acceptable in the sight of God. Maybe you thought that. Maybe you thought that you really needed to be religious. That's why you came to church. Like, well, I'll go to church today. That'll kind of make God happier with me. Or maybe you knew that you needed grace, but you didn't know that you needed grace alone. You still thought that God needed you to perform in order to earn his love and his forgiveness. Maybe even someone taught you that from the Bible. Well, hopefully what you've seen this morning is that the power of God for salvation is found in the gospel. It's in the gospel. It's found completely in Jesus. It's not in you. He performed, Jesus did. He performed the righteousness that none of us could have. Therefore, he could atone. He could pay for the sins of our lives on the cross because, again, we were not just sick. We were dead in our sins. He does that on our behalf because, again, apart from him, we're dead in our sins. And so his resurrection, then, is a promise of new life for all those who believe. They're born again. He is our only hope. We have no hope in ourselves. And so that tells you two things, friend, as you're evaluating the Christian faith. That should tell you two things. If salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. That should tell you two things. The first thing that it should tell you is that it's okay to not be okay. You don't have to hide what you've done or what's been done to you. You don't have to hide the fact that you don't know where the book of Habakkuk is. All right? You don't have to hide the fact that you don't know how to pray and you're scared to pray out loud or whatever the case may be. God tells us that his power is made perfect in weakness. And weakness. And hopefully that makes a little bit more sense to you by now. The more that we understand our weakness, the closer we are in understanding our need for the grace of God. Where we understand the teaching of Christ that said that we must be blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Because when we're poor in spirit, then we're empty and we're able to be filled. And so the sooner, friend, that you lean into your weakness and stop trying to be strong on your own, perform your own righteousness, the sooner you can do the second thing, to be made righteous. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. It's okay to not be okay, but secondly, trust Jesus. Or as Paul says there in Romans 1.17, the righteous live by faith. See, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's not you. It's not the gospel plus you. 
The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ who takes sinners and makes them into saints by his grace and for his glory. So Jesus says, friend, he says to you, as you're thinking about what it means to follow Christ, Jesus invites, he says, cast all your cares upon me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Cast them all. So friend, receive the grace of God, enjoy the love of God as you cast all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your fears upon him. Trust him. And receive the grace of God by believing Him. And trust the whole of your life to Him. Receive the righteousness of God that comes by faith, by believing in Jesus alone. And give Him all of your shame and all of your guilt and all of your fears. And if you'd like to do that, friend, then you come talk to me. Come talk to maybe the person that you came with today. When you're at lunch today, tell them, listen, I'm a mess. But boy, I need grace. Not just grace. I need grace alone because I cannot do this. And let that person then, if you're that person at lunch today, you should tell them, well, let me tell you about the greatness of Christ. And for those of you that have already believed, remember that your believing, your salvation came to you by the grace of God alone. As Paul wrote to the Galatians, you began by the Spirit, so don't think that you can be perfected by the flesh. Which is to say, by your own efforts. It's from faith for faith. It's always grace through faith, always working it out. You're not perfected by your flesh. God, in His infinite grace, chose you from before the foundation of the world to lay His affection upon you, His grace upon you, to reveal His righteousness to you. And so enjoy His grace this week. And guess what? Tell somebody about it. I guarantee you that your coworkers, your friends, are exhausted from trying to be good. Just tell them, I'm not good. Jesus is good. I put all my trust in Him. I can remember when we would go to, to New Orleans and we would clean up those houses after Hurricane Katrina and we would get done and they cleaned it up and the people were always like, oh, thank you for driving down from North Carolina to come clean up our house. And I would tell them every single time, I'd say to them, listen, I want you to know the reason why I did this is not because I'm a good person because you know what? I'm not. I did this because of the grace of Christ. And I want to give you that grace. I want you to know something of it. So tell people about the grace of Christ. And don't forget that it's good news. Be free. You don't have to perform. Trust Jesus. Is there something to us working on our faith? The Catholic Church said to Luther, you teach people this, they're going to start just not doing anything. I think sometimes the Catholic Church might have been right about that. We can abuse grace. But understand, we work from grace, not towards it. Because if you work for grace, then you totally lose grace. Well, let's conclude with the rest of Luther's life and hopefully illustrate these truths that he stood for. And we now stand to benefit because of his work. Well, having walked through those gates and having entered paradise at the discovery of salvation that brought righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, Luther was unwilling to go to back down from the bullying of the Roman Catholic Church to renounce that gospel. And so after Eck had baited Luther in his, dis- his debate and exposed Luther for teaching the same things that people like John Huss did two centuries before, the Roman Catholic Church put out this bull. Right? It's not an actual bull. They're like, go, go get a you know, bull running through the streets. It wasn't that. It was a notice. It was a notice which called for the excommunication of Luther. And by doing so, they deemed Luther a heretic. Now for some of you, you think, what's the big deal? So what? The church thinks he's a 
you know, he's excommunicated from the church, right? I mean, the reality is, right, if you believe the same gospel I'm preaching, guess what? The Roman Catholic Church thinks you too are excommunicated, and you too uh, are a heretic. So some of us sort of hear that and go, ah, no big deal. Well, listen, uh, the last time that somebody did this, renounced, directly renounced the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, was that guy John Huss that Luther was associated, now associated with. And when he did it, they burned him. Matter of fact, they not only burned him, they actually killed him. They actually dug up his bones. True story. They dug up his bones and burned his bones later. That's how much they hated what he was saying. And so we have to keep in mind that all of this is happening during the time of the Holy Roman Empire. All right? So, good fact to know, the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy, Roman, or an empire. But nevertheless, it was happening during this time. The Roman Catholic Church and the state were aligned together in the West and uh, in Europe. So therefore, to go against the church was to be an enemy of the state. And so Luther was now a criminal, a traitor, a kind of theological terrorist in the eyes of both church and state. He was a menace to society. And so after Luther had received this bull, this notice, he was given 60 days to recant, to say he turns away from what he's been teaching. And so since the Roman Catholic Church did not, when he gets this bull, since he notices that they do not interact with any arguments from Scripture, they're only appealing to councils and to the Pope, he notices, Luther then concludes, he must be reading the Bible right because they're not making any arguments from Scripture. And that strengthens Luther's resolve. He knew that he was seeing the text, what he was seeing in the text about grace for salvation alone was real. And so what did Luther do with this excommunication, this bull of excommunication? Well, he received the bull on October the 10th, 1520. And 60 days later, his disciple, Philip Melanchthon, uh, issues an invitation on December the 10th, 60 days later, uh, to come out and have this bonfire there in Wittenberg at a gate. And what they were going to do at this bonfire was there had been a couple bonfires going on throughout Germany where Roman Catholic Church were taking Luther's books and tracts and throwing them in the fire to burn them. Well, Philip Melanchthon decides that he's going to have a bonfire of his own. All right? And on the day that the bull expired, thereby deeming Luther a heretic uh, and then excommunicating him, uh, they have this bonfire. And at this bonfire in the city of Wittenberg on December the 10th, 15. Uh, 20, this is now three years removed from those 95 theses, they, instead of throwing Luther's books in there, they throw Roman Catholic canon law into this fire. And then out comes Luther from the crowd. And in Luther's hand is that piece of paper, that bull, to condemn him. And what does he do with it? He takes it, reaches out, throws it into the fire. The line at this point had been drawn. He would not turn back. How could he turn back when he understood this beautiful grace alone salvation? He did not turn back. Well, what would the church and the state do with Luther then as a result of this? Well, Luther had been producing, as I mentioned, book after book, tract after tract. uh, And his works were spreading like wildfire around Germany thanks to this recent invention of the Gutenberg Press. And the books that he's writing talked about all kinds of things. He wrote one book about how the church was held captive. Uh, and he exposed how the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church did not fit with the teaching of Scripture. Uh, for instance, he dismisses the teaching of transubstantiation. He also restores the cup of the wine, so the juice right here. He restores that to the laity because that had been withheld from the laity. And they would only get the bread. He does all kinds of things. And so the Holy Roman Emperor, right? So this is the sort of state version of the Pope. He was a guy by the name of Charles V. 
And it was agreed that Luther would have to stand charge against Charles, that Luther would have to stand charge against Charles V as an enemy of the state. And so he was summoned to go to this thing called the Diet of Worms. It's kind of funny because it looks like it says Diet of Worms. Very strange. Diet simply means assembly. Worms was just the place. So think of it sort of like he was, you know, had to go to this political summit in New York City kind of thing. That's sort of what he had to do. So everyone around Luther told him, don't go to this diet because they're going to kill you. Well, believe it or not, Luther decides to go. And as he traveled along the countryside over to Worms, the people, the peasantry praised him. They applauded him as he went because what he had done is he'd liberated the peasantry because the Roman Catholic Church and the state had kind of kept the peasantry down. And now Luther was restoring things to them. And so they loved him. He's being applauded as he makes his way to the Diet of Worms. And eventually he gets to Worms. And as he comes in, there's some 2,000 people just applauding him. I mean, this is a huge event. Well, he walks into this diet, into this assembly. And there, sitting at the front, is Charles V. Now, a couple things to note about this moment. The kind of governor of Wittenberg, he was called an elector of Saxony, which is where Luther lived, uh, was a guy by the name of Frederick the Wise. He was very used of God because Frederick the Wise protected Luther in so many ways. And so, uh, so Luther goes in there with this agreement that Frederick the Wise had made with Charles V, that Charles V wouldn't kill Luther. He'd let him go no matter what happens. Uh, but also, Luther is showing up at this diet because he thinks he's going to be able to reason. He's going to be able to open up his Bible and go, all right, guys, listen. So it says here, it does this, it says this, it says that. He thinks he's going to be able to do that. One of the reasons, one of the other reasons he decided to go. But when he is summoned into the room, he comes in there and he stands in the court of Charles V. Now, I want you to think about the gravity of this moment. Just think about this. Try to think about the gravity of this moment. I love how Roland Bainton, the biographer of Luther, puts it. Here it is. He says, here's the moment. Luther's in the Diet of Worms. He's standing in front of Charles V in front of all of this pomp the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. This is what Bainton says, describing the moment. Here was Charles, heir of a long line of Catholic sovereigns, of Maximilian the Romantic, of Ferdinand the Catholic, of Isabel the Orthodox, ruling over a vaster domain than any save Charlemagne, symbol of the medieval times, incarnation of a glorious if vanishing heritage, and here before him, a simple monk, a minor son, with nothing to sustain him save his own faith in the word of God. Unquote. And so as Luther entered the room, he noticed a table that had all of his writings on it. And Luther was asked if these books were his. Now we'd like to think that Luther at this point was sort of like William Wallace. Yes, these are my books, you know, freedom! You know, we think that he's going to be like that, but he's not. He's scared. Think about this. I mean, he is standing before the Holy Roman Emperor. They could put the... They could just take him down right there. He sees his book and he's asked, are these books yours? In a voice, history tells us that he spoke it in a voice that was barely audible. He responds by saying, the books are mine. The books are all mine. And I love that he adds this. And I have written more. <laughs> I think I would have just said, yeah, yeah, they're mine. But he's like, no, yeah, I've written those and I've written some other ones. So, and guess who's in the room at the time? It's his old rival, Eck, standing there. And he responded, Eck responded to Luther, well, do you defend them all or do you care to reject a part? Now, this surprised Luther because, remember, he thought that he would have the opportunity to defend himself in his writings. But it was only a simple question. Well, Luther responded, 
This touches God on His Word. This affects the salvation of souls. Of this, Christ said, He who denies Me before men, Him will I deny before My Father. To say too little or too much would be to be dangerous. I beg you, give me a little time to think over it. Now this surprises everybody in the room. They thought he would be courageous. And just sort of saying he was courageous, but he needs some time to think about it. So he goes and spends the night there, and he wakes up the next day and he comes back. And as he comes back into the room, Luther attempts to kind of separate the manner of each of his books. He would sort of say, well, this book is sort of about that, and this book is sort of about this, so I can't sort of deny them all. But Eck breaks in and says, Martin, how can you assume that you are the only one to understand the sense of Scripture? Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors that they contain? And Luther at this point rises up and courage wells within him and he now speaks clearly and responds back to Eck in the midst of Charles V and all of the court. He responds by saying, since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. God help me. Amen. Now later they add, uh, it's said that he's added, here I stand. So help me God. So there it was. Good to his word, Charles V let Luther go. But a price was now on Luther's head. It's a great story, which I won't get into. He leaves the Diet of Worms. He's smuggled along the way, taken under uh, captivity. He, is, he's, he can't even see where he's going, so he could not know where he's actually at. Frederick the Wise has orchestrated all of this, and he's taken to a castle at Wartburg. And there in that castle in 11 weeks, folks, in 11 weeks, he sits in a castle and does nothing but translate the New Testament into German so that everybody could read it. And so people could now read the Bible for themselves, something that would never have been advocated before. And to his own surprise, Luther was never taken capture and he was never martyred. Much of this had to do with the fact that Frederick the Wise was helping him, but Uh, He continued to write, Luther did. He continued to preach, continued to teach, continued reforming the church in all of Germany. And he uh, moved, uh, just a few things that he did, he moved the liturgy of a service into German, all of the liturgy of the service into German so that everybody could understand what was happening. It wouldn't have been uncommon for them to preach in German what little preaching there was, but all the other elements would have been in Latin. And so he restores that into all German so that everybody could understand, as you're going to see me do in just a moment, they understand what's going on. A great thing. Also, he helps spur on education to society because now they've got the bait of the Bible. If they could actually learn how to read and write, they may be able to read God's word for themselves. So that encourages education in society. And also, people's understanding of work was enlivened, sometimes called the Protestant work ethic. Because now they begin to understand it wasn't just guys like me that were doing the work of God. It was all of us. No matter what we may do, it was important to God. And then one of the most forgotten aspects of the Reformation that Luther accomplished was introducing music to church services. Now this is pretty amazing to think about. He introduced congregational singing. I shouldn't say introduced. He kind of reintroduces it. Before, for Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in the church, there might have been some choirs on occasion, but never before had the laity sung together in church. Can you imagine church with no singing in it? Well, Luther loved music so much, he wrote all kinds of music, 
Many of you are familiar with his song, Mighty Fortress is Our God. He writes all kinds of music so that the church could sing the greatness of God together. And so we sing today, first because the Bible tells us to, uh, and we ought to want to, but secondly, because of the work of Luther to help recapture these ideas. But the flames of the Reformation had begun, and it began again with just a simple man who wasn't trying to do anything revolutionary. He was just trying to be faithful with what he had in front of him. He loved God, and he loved his people, and he was willing to stand in the gap because he had been changed by the grace of God. He wanted God, most notably, to receive glory, and he wanted the people under his care to know the truth. But again, most notably, he wanted them to know that salvation is by grace alone, no merit of our own, through faith alone. He wanted them to know that and be changed by that. He wanted them to know that the power of God for salvation was in the gospel, was in Christ and his work. The power is not in us, it's in God. And so me, may we, Restoration Church, carry the torch forward. The Reformation is not yet complete, folks. There are still Catholic churches right in our neighborhood. Work is left to be done. And let's not forget, even in our own church, we sometimes believe the same ideas that Luther fought against. The power is not in us. The power is in God. Share the good news of Jesus Christ, the one that took our sin and gave us His righteousness by grace. Luther called that the great exchange. What a Savior. Aren't you glad to know, friends, that there's more grace in Him than there is sin in you? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a bunch of wretches like us. All by His amazing grace alone. It's ours to enjoy and ours to tell forever and ever and ever. Let's give thanks for it. Heavenly Father, we thank You for grace. Grace is what we needed. Grace is what you've offered us. We're thankful, God, that the righteous live by faith. That we could be made righteous because not by anything that we have done to earn it, but because we trust something else. We trust the power of you in Christ Jesus. God, forgive us for the ways in which we try to merit our own salvation. And make us more and more thankful that you've done it all in Christ Jesus. May we be quick to speak of it, to enjoy it. Thank you, God. Thank you for grace. Thank you for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.